Okay, so two weeks from tomorrow, VBS starts, okay? And that really changes the whole world because this place is, all the chairs are gone. In fact, in, uh, two Sundays from today, you're going to help us move them all out at the end of the second service. Fills up with kids, and then a place is a disaster for the rest of the week. But don't forget to pray for them because, I mean, I don't know what it was last year, but the year before last, we had 75 unchurched families represented with the kids that came to VBS. And so uh, it's a chance to, for us to really have an impact in their lives um, because the kids are going to be learning about Jesus and singing songs they're going to memorize and they're going to go home, they're going to sing them in the car and, and it's just really a great time. So pray for that. And then that's Monday through Friday and then on the Saturday, the 10th, is our hour cleanup for the church. So bring your rakes and your broom and shovel, whatever it is you want to do and um, we could really use your help here in the facility next door and the facility over there. We get everything all cleaned up. And, and then um, at noon, Rob is going to be cooking something right here in his cooker. So we're going to have uh, ribs or something. I don't even remember what it is now, but we're going to have a lunch together. So come to that. The following day is the 11th, and that's the first Sunday of amphitheater. Okay. Some of you are already asking about it. Yes, the first Sunday of amphitheater. So... Uh, we only have one service. You're welcome to come here if you want, but you're going to be praying by yourself, okay? For the amphitheater, and it's right down here, we need help. We're going to say it every week. It takes 80 to 100 of our people to make amphitheater work between setup and cleanup, uh, takedown, communion, ushers, greeters, tech, sound, everything. It takes a lot of people. Um, so please think about joining us and helping us. Okay. Then, tomorrow night, we do this every three to four years, we have a community night, a leadership night, where we invite the leaders in the community to come. That's tomorrow night, okay? They come here right over in the commons. We have refreshments and everything. That's probably dessert, knowing Jude. This is our chance to figure out how to bless this county. This church was formed in 1912, back before we had a reservoir. And, um, and so we've been involved in the, the county from day one, back, back before they called it a county, called it a vicinity. And so um, we have them come in every three to four years. So we have somebody from the school system. I think the town manager is coming. Uh, we have for Dylan. We have the police chiefs for Silverthorne and uh, Dylan. We have the fire chief coming and uh, FERC and advocates. And we say, just come in, take 15, 20 minutes. It's not, a, it's not a question and answer forum. That's not it. We're not here to grill you. We want to know how we can bless you. Tell us your challenges. Tell us, tell us what they are. What are the challenges that you face? How can we as a church pray for you? Maybe financially help you? Maybe help get our, energize our people to help you? A lot of good ministry has come out of these meetings over the years as we have really worked together. And every time we have a new leader come into town, when they come to this, they're like, I've never had a church do this. When I teach the doctoral classes of these young pastors, they've never even thought of this idea. You know? And um, we want to have a very good relationship with our county. So that's tomorrow night, 6 to 8, right over here. And it's a real blessing to them if a bunch of you come. Hint, hint. Okay? So come and listen. And you're going to learn so much about the county, things that you didn't know. You're going to learn things that the people that are in charge are going to tell you. And you're going to hear about what's happening and how we can help them. Okay. I'm going to change gears. We're getting near the end of our study of the Minor Prophets. Today we're on Zechariah, okay? Zechariah. 
Just to remind you, the Persians had defeated the Babylonians in 539 BC. We're now around 520, so 18, 19 years later, okay? And um, Zerubbabel was the governor, if you will, of Jerusalem. And I'll come back to him in just a minute because he actually plays a very theologically significant role. But the Persians had defeated the Babylonians, and the Persians, their, um, their foreign policy was they took all the conquered peoples scattered throughout their land and let them go back home. Just go home. And so the, the Jewish people are starting to come back into the land in Israel, okay? And they came back under two or three different segments. So there's a remnant floating back in. They're defeated. They're discouraged. The uh, once great city of Jerusalem, uh, the great uh, Solomon's temple, it's all been destroyed. They had started to rebuild it. Um, they rebuilt the walls around the city and they kind of gave up on the temple. We talked about that last week with Haggai. Haggai's message was get busy, get out of your cells and get back to building the temple. And so they're a discouraged people. They're a remnant. Zechariah um, comes along two months after Haggai. They know each other, okay? In fact, all these prophets for the next few weeks, all, they're all at the same time in the same place. And Jerusalem's not very big. It's only about 11, 8 to 11 acres. So they all, I'm sure they knew each other, but they each brought a different message from the Lord because now that the Lord has brought them back, he's got some important things to do. So you may remember before the exile, he's warning them, quit sinning. They don't listen, so then they go into the exile and his message then is, I don't, haven't forgotten you. Now they're back in the land and he's beginning to, he wants to draw them back closer together and uh, return to him. In fact, I titled this, Repent and Return, um, Haggai encouraged him to get busy rebuilding the temple. Zechariah is encouraging repentance and renewal and a return to the Lord in preparation for the temple. What they don't know is that this is the groundwork for the future spiritual temple. So these prophets are laying the groundwork, not only in their present day, but the groundwork, the foundation for what's coming with the Messiah. Because he's beginning, God's beginning to turn uh, the spotlight into the future a little bit. Zechariah has a lot of it. There's 14 chapters. We're not going to go through it. I wish we could because there's very fascinating. I told you at the beginning that when we look at the minor prophets as a group, you put them in a panorama, if you will, you learn a ton about God's patience. For example, from beginning to end, there are 300 years. We're 450 years after Solomon uh, when, the, when they had the Civil War. So God's not in a hurry. He's very patient with them. He's very loving. He's caring. He punishes when he needs to. But all the way through, every time we've gone to one of these prophets, we have seen that in the middle of the prophecies of judgment, there's always a word for the remnant. Hang in there. Hang in there. Okay? They have to suffer the consequences of the sin of the nation, but they receive the blessing from the Lord. So with Zechariah, what we're learning now is that God does not give up on his people. He pursues them constantly. Kicked them out of the land. That was punishment because uh, sometimes you got to do that with your kids. I asked a question a couple of Sundays ago, is God the author of evil or the restrainer of evil? Because sometimes the language in there looks like God is the one that hardened people's hearts and all that. But what he's doing, just like you do his parents, he warns and warns and warns, then he lifts the restraint. The Assyrians come in, destroy the northern kingdom, then he clamps back down, okay? Gives them another chance. The southern kingdom warns and warns and warns. They don't listen. It lifts their restraint. The Babylonians come in. 
So then he kind of clamps back down and, these, and the Persians come in and destroy the Babylonians. And God, every time they take advantage of his people, he destroys them. None of those ancient nations exist today. None of them. Um, and so it's a really fascinating study in history blending with theology of watching God work. Everything that's been said that he said would happen has come true. And that's just absolutely remarkable. So now when we get to Zechariah, it's 14 chapters. As I said, we're not going to go through it all. But we are going to look at some specific stuff. So I'm going to read. I'm going to open up with the first four verses. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, he's the king of the Persian Empire right now. He replaced Cyrus when Cyrus died. So the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The Lord, verse 2, was very angry with your ancestors. Okay? This, this is what Zechariah is saying. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty. There's it is twice. And I will return to you, declares the Lord Almighty. There's three times. Do not be... He's trying to remind him who he is. Okay? They haven't rebuilt the temple yet. Haggai, two months before, just told him to get busy. It takes him five years. So it doesn't get completed for five more years. And so they don't... They've kind of lost track of who he is. They've been scattered all throughout the nation... And they're all coming back together. They didn't have what we have, copies of the Bible right here. They didn't have any of that. And they're coming back from being scattered around the world. And they haven't even rebuilt the temple. That's how unimportant it is. And how apathetic they are and discouraged. So Haggai says, get busy on the temple. And Zechariah is bringing them back. So he, call, he lists his name, Lord Almighty. What we think of as El Shaddai. Okay? The Lord Almighty... And he says, do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaim. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So he's saying, don't be like the ancestors. Don't be like them. Okay, he has eight night visions. It's pretty interesting how God does a lot of things at night when it comes to visions. I've told you before, not boasting, this is just my part of my job, my responsibility. Every Sunday, I think without exception for 10 years, around one or two in the morning, I wake up. I wake up thinking about you. Okay, just being very honest with you. Okay, to get up here and give you data is easy. If you've been in my office, thousands of books with data, all right? But that's not going to help you. My job is to take this data and to do what Ryan said, to create space, to help you with a relationship, to draw you this way. I have a, a metaphor. Honestly, I'll be very honest with you. I don't care if you remember what I said by tomorrow. Okay? I know by next week you're not going to remember anyway. That's just the way it works. But what I hope happens is that all of you just take a half step closer to the Lord. Honestly, I hope when you walk out of here, you love the Lord just a little bit more than you did when you came in, and you're a little more intrigued by this. Somebody asked me, um, two years ago, we went through Leviticus, and went through Isaiah, went through Ecclesiastes, we're going through the Minor Prophets, we've been through a lot of the New Testament books. Is, is the book of Numbers like this? Life-giving? Yeah. Yeah, it's the Word of God. It doesn't matter where you go in the Bible. It's all life-giving. You just have to know how to make sense of an ancient world for it to be life-giving. 
So I get up in the morning and I wrestle for one or two hours early in the morning, not sleeping, thinking about you. And how do I do that? One of the reasons I don't want to know what the people leading in worship are doing is because they surprise me. I get to experience them like you do. So I had no idea he was going to create this metaphor. Thank you of space. He just opened the door and unlocked it for me to walk right into it because this is what Zechariah is all about, is inviting people, come back, come back, come back. Don't be like your ancestors. So he's got these eight visions, okay? I'm going to read little snippets out of them. You won't be able to follow along because I'm going to move a lot faster. won't be up here. But just think about the general topics. He's going to, there's a promise for peace coming. There's divine judgment to the nations, that are coming. The restoration of Jerusalem, divinely appointed religious leadership. Praise God, I hope it happens soon here. Okay? I, haven't, I, I don't get into politics very much, but I will tell you this. I'm fed up with both parties. Okay? We're back in junior high or middle school. We're going to argue about every little thing. And, no, and it seems like everybody's interested in their own personal stuff. Uh, I just love that one day when the president gets up there, and the State of the Union speech and says, we got some problems, we're going to hell in a handbasket, and I have no idea what to do about it. They're going to earn my respect, but they don't. We got it figured out. Nobody has it figured out except God. Okay, there's a covenant of righteousness. We're going to see all that here. So I'm just going to read little snippets here. The first vision, there's a, a man among these trees, and uh, there's all these, uh, these other men with him. They're angels, and they've gone out into the world. And here's what they say, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. For a brief period of time, the world is settled. Now, what happens when the world settles? When Persians come in, every nation that comes in does this, and, the, and everybody takes a sigh, ah, and the world's at rest. What happens? Look what I did. Persians' days are already, Persians days are already numbered. The Greeks are coming in pretty soon. They're going to do the same. Alexander the Great, and then guess what? The Romans are coming in. And then we scatter into world, little wars all around the, the world for the rest of our history, including today. That's just what happens. People, people are driven by power and they're driven by money. Okay, it's a fallen world. Get used to it. If you're not used to it. So you have all this stuff. There's a momentary bit of peace. The next vision, I'm not going to read anything. The enemies are going to rise up. It happens all over again. Then you get to the next uh, the next vision, and there's a man with a measuring line. When, all, when you guys bought your houses, those of you that own it, somewhere along the way, you had somebody go out and uh, um, check the boundaries and everything to make sure what you're getting is what you paid for. I have a, we live in Littleton before we moved up here, one of my neighbors, one of my friends, he decided to have a guy come out and do it, and he found out the boundary marker, somebody had moved them a long time in the past, and he didn't get what was on paper. Well, he had to go to court because both neighbors thought they owned this property in the middle and they didn't. They had to settle it legally. Okay, so this imagery of the measuring line, God is measuring Jerusalem and saying, this is my property. This is where I put my name. And that's his way of saying, just be patient. But right in the middle of that, you get this wonderful verse, shout and be glad, daughter Zion. For I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day, that's the future, and will become my people. That was the promise to Abraham. Many nations, all the nations. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. You see this? Come back. 
You see this written in there? Promises of hope. Come back. Come back. Then you move over a little bit more, and he talks about Joshua, the high priest. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy rags as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing with him, take off those dirty clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. I will put fine garments on you. That's right out of, this is the New Testament. This is part of the theology of the New Testament. What did Jesus say to Peter? You are already clean. You've been cleansed by the crucifixion on the cross. And therefore, Peter can say, we are all priests. We're all priests. And there's a snippet of what's coming. Then you have this fascinating passage. She read part of it. Um, he says to uh, Zechariah, what do you see? And he says, I see a golden lampstand and a bowl set on top of seven lamps and seven channels on the lamps. I see two olive trees. And you know what he's talking about? It's a holy place. He's seeing the temple, which they're hopefully going to rebuild, which they will in the next five years. He sees the temple, but then here's what God says. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. He's the governor. We looked last week with Haggai. Zerubbabel is very critical because David's line had lost the kingdom and was Zerubbabel that brought it back. And so in Matthew 1, Zerubbabel is listed in the lineage of David all the way down to Jesus. And so Zerubbabel was important. This is the way of saying this is restoring the line of David. So here's what he said to him, to the governor, Zerubbabel. When you build this temple that, you're, that Zechariah is seeing in a vision, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, the spirit of God is going to build the true temple that's coming. Okay? I've, asked, I've said different times in different ways over the years, Okay, Moses is standing in the desert. He looks over and he sees uh, a burning bush, but it's not being consumed. So he walks over and what does God say? Hey, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. Why is this ground holy, but this ground is not? Because that's where God's presence is, right? So what does Paul say? Each of you, this happened at Pentecost, each of you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Together we form a worldwide global temple of the Holy Spirit. What's the purpose of the temple? God's presence. That's where he resides. That's why that was holy and this wasn't. Each of you has a Holy Spirit. Guess what? You're standing on holy ground. You're standing on holy ground. You create holy ground everywhere you go. When you enter into the lives of your neighbors, coworkers, friends, unbelievers, they don't understand it, but they're watching something that they have never seen. They're observing something with you that they've never seen, a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where they come to find God. And here it is. This Spirit's going to do this, and that's actually what happened at Pentecost. Fascinating little passage. So then we come on over and uh, see if there's anything else I want to say. Now we'll get to, we'll get to chapter 7. I want to call attention to some things. At the very heart of what God is talking about when he says, return to me, He's talking about returning back to the covenant. Now, you may remember two years ago, we talked about Leviticus. That's kind of the heart and soul of the holiness part of the covenant. And I said there that that's the blueprint, the background for the New Testament. Not all the rituals, 
but the purpose for the rituals. You see, the covenant hasn't changed. We're under the same covenant as Israel. When you go all the way back to Exodus 19, they just came out of Egypt, and God says, if you obey me, I'll make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay? Now you go all the way down to Peter, 1 Peter 2. You are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He recites the covenant. That's you. What happened in between? Jesus. Okay? And you trusted in the Lord, and now you are a kingdom of priests. You are. That's what you are. That's why it's necessary for you to be declared holy, because you're a kingdom of priests. That's why I've said several times, when I look, I look out here, and I see, I see God has this holy nation, this army, if you will, for the kingdom, spread all around this county. I see people in, you know, uh, town councils, uh, working for the school system, public health, retail, wherever you happen to go, wherever God has taken you. Uh, he's got you scattered all throughout the county. The problem is, you don't see yourself that way. In our doctoral classes with our young pastors, one of the things we talk about, and they all have the same story, how do we get our people to see the reality of who they are? That's the hardest part about pastoring a church, is getting you to really honestly believe when you're with a non-Christian, the Holy Spirit is doing something right then because you're standing on holy ground. Because you're a temple. It's hard to get people to believe it because you get caught up in the day-to-day quagmire of your jobs and life and kids and finances and all the things that go on, career, and you lose track. You lose sight of the fact that you are a temple. God created something the world has never seen. So God is calling them back to this covenant. And the question is, what does this look like to come back to the covenant? Well, first of all, God calls their, calls their rituals into question. Chapter 7. In the fourth year of King Denarius, so now, Darius, so now we're two years after Haggai, um, verse 2, the prophet of Bethel, the people of Bethel, they sent this uh, entourage of people to ask, to entreat the Lord with a question. So Bethel's up north and they're coming down to the Jerusalem in the temple. Okay? So here's what they ask. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for many years? This is what they asked the priest to inquire of the Lord. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? Okay, now we're 70 years since the temple was destroyed. Solomon's temple. We're now 70 years later. We've gone through the exile and now we're after. And it's, when it happened, when they got exiled... They began to create these fasts, and the fifth month was the time when they fasted for the, to remember the temple because it had been destroyed. So should we keep fasting since we're going to rebuild it? Sounds like an honest question. The Lord's answer is fascinating. So verse 4, Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, Ask of all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and you mourned in the fifth and seventh months in the past 70 years, so you've been fasting for 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? Okay, pause. When you sing worship songs, do you do it because it makes you feel good? Or as Ryan suggested, are you really entering the space that God has created? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets? They didn't listen. That's why I've said for 10 years, a ritual done well 
takes this opaqueness where we have to live by faith and turns it clear. A ritual done well allows us to see Jesus. A ritual done poorly makes you feel good about yourselves. And that is highly destructive. Lent, Easter, Advent, Christmas Eve, Christmas, we take the time to work through our rituals. We work through communion every Sunday because I don't want to be guilty of it just becoming a ritual. Hear the words, the Lord's questions. When you fasted, was it really for me that you fasted? Or did you just make you feel better about yourself? When you ate and drank, festivals, all that, were you not just feasting for yourselves? This is a check on the heart. Why do you do what you do? Why do you come down? Why do you give? You know why we put offering and communion after the sermon? It's an act of worship. Offering is a time for you to wrestle with how generous are you going to be. That's between you and the Lord. But it's a chance to wrestle. And communion is a chance for you to wrestle with what God has done, how generous he is. So that's what he asks. So the ancestors, they departed from the covenant. Okay, verse 9, this is what the Lord Almighty said. Um, Oh, got to get to the right verse. I want to read it to you. Yeah, this is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot against each other. These are all, lang- these are all concepts right out of the Levitical Code. So he's saying he gave, they, they had the covenant and they refused to ignore it. He goes on. They refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs, covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words of the Lord Almighty and that he had sent through his spirit, spirit through the earlier prophets. So he said, I gave them the covenant and here's what they did with it. Don't be like them. So his answer is an invitation to return to the covenant. Chapter 8, verse 16. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. That's Ephesians 4. Speak truth to one another, right? Um, Render true and sound judgment in your courts. That's all throughout Proverbs. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Be fair. Be kind to one another. Treat people fairly. Do not plot evil against each other. Guess what? That's Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Folks, the public school board is not our enemy. The governor is not our enemy. The president is not our enemy. Congress is not our enemy. Do not be fooled. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's Ephesians 6. They're fallen humans. I don't know their motives. I honestly don't know. And it's not up to me to guess, and I'm not going to try. All I know is they're not the enemy. The enemy is the power behind all of it. That's, safe. That's why he says, do not plot evil against each other. Do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. We really have a covenant that has been renewed in a very fresh way. There's not an enemy on this planet. He exists elsewhere. But then he turns to hope, okay? He turns to hope. He's going to read a few of these little passages. Chapter 12. Now he's starting in chapter 9. He's pointing them toward the future. 
I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Okay? That's hope. That happened at Pentecost. See, now he's talking to them in the present, but he's starting to shift their gaze for those that, as Jesus said, have eyes to see and ears to hear. He's shifting it to the, to the future. And then he gives this verse, which you've all heard before, uh, in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Now listen to John when Jesus came in, uh, what we celebrate, Palm Sunday. The next day, the great cloud that had crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. That was a fairly standard greeting we now know in the first century. Oh, they knew he was a prophet. They understood that. Okay, that they made sense of it. But then John goes on and gives us a little tidbit of information. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it in fulfillment of Zechariah. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. They didn't recognize this was the Messiah. The very next verse. At first, his disciples did not understand any of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, the Messiah. They didn't even know it. So he's giving them clues, breadcrumbs, a glimpse into the future, if you will. But, very, but first of all, he had to come as a suffering shepherd. And this is near the very end of Zechariah 13. Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's what happened at crucifixion. I will turn my hand against the little ones, and the whole hand, declares the Lord. Two-thirds will be struck down in Paris, yet one-third will be left in it. The third I will put, now here's that remnant idea, which we keep seeing. The third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. Paul uses this imagery in the Corinthian epistles. That we've been refined and we're being refined. They will call on my name and I will answer them. They will say, and this is very similar to Habakkuk, which Paul uses. They are my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. God didn't give up on his people. 450 years after they walked away, he's still pursuing them. Just like he pursues you. Just like he pursues you. He doesn't give up. So, when Lauren and um, Ryan invited us into this space, what do you do with it? Do you walk out of here feeling good like, ah, I did my time at church? Feel good about yourself for showing up? Or do you take advantage of this? Because we're working on creating a culture and a journey for you to step into a space you won't find out there. The presence of God. That's what the temple is. And that's what this is right here. This is the temple of God. He has, he has to be patient. 
because we are obstinate. The Bible is a long story of a bunch of obstinate, stubborn people, and that's us. Praise Jesus, he's patient with me. And I'm glad he's patient with you too. It's that patience. We have to let him have his way. We have to. That's why I've said suffering and affliction is a theological necessity in a fallen world. If all he did was bless Adam and Eve, they never would have turned back. And in decades of serving Christ, I can't even remember all the stories. There are countless of when hard times come, that's when people turn to Christ. We have to let him have his way. So when we do rituals like we're getting ready to do, is this, is this an invitation to you? Do you see it that way? To step into God's presence? Or does it just make you feel better about yourself? Father, thank you for just being an incredible God. Uh, I love Zechariah's story. It's at the end of a really long, hard few centuries when you finally begin to say, come back, come back. Repent, return. Obey the covenant and love the people around you. Care for them. Watch out for them. Take care of the widows and the orphans, the poor. And Lord, I'm grateful as we get ready to take an offering that we are a church who cares very much about the poor and the marginalized, those who can't take care of themselves. Thank you for these people here who are generous. In Jesus' name, amen.